I want to welcome especially the men at the men's retreat who are joining us, I think, Sunday morning with this video, and uh, all of you who are at the South Campus in Lakeville, and all of you who are downtown Sunday morning and Sunday evening. Let's all cross these hours and across these miles pray together. Lord of the harvest, you have told us to pray to you that you would send laborers because the harvest is white and ready for harvest. And so I ask now that in these eight services this weekend plus the men's retreat, you would send, you would call out for yourself, young and old, and so give them a compelling sense of your leading cross-cultures and long-term that they would know, I am sent. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is my 30th or 29th, depending on how you count, and last sermon on missions as your pastor. And um, that's not exactly true if you have ears to hear because every sermon is on missions in my way of thinking. But you know what I mean. November 13, 1983 was my first one. And I have preached in this global focus every year since, except, I think, in 2010. What a privilege to be a part of this Bethlehem legacy of world missions. To lead Bethlehem, to lead Bethlehem, which has been my job these 33 years, is to lead a mission agency. Not just a church, but a church with an absolutely extraordinary sending calling on it. An organization of sending and supporting like few others. To lead this global mission was an inheritance that I received and did not create. And it is a legacy or a bequest that I bequeath with joy to Jason Meyer. It's an inheritance. 1890, some of you know the story. Bethlehem was 29 years old. She was downtown, where I stand. Right now, there's a parking lot in those days, but right over there, a few feet away. 1890, Swedish Baptist Church, First Swedish Baptist, Minnie and Ola Hansen were sent, were commissioned from the membership of this church to Burma and to the Kachin people, a vengeful, cruel, treacherous, unreached tribe. Ola Hansen was told by the king of Burma 112 years ago, so you are to teach the Kachins. Do you see my dogs over there? 
I tell you, it will be easier to convert and teach these dogs. You are wasting your life. The Kachin were completely illiterate, no written language, and over the next 30 plus, 36 plus years, Ola Hansen collected 25,000 words and wrote them down, wrote a Kachin English dictionary in 1911. He published the New Testament in Kachin in August 11, 1926. He completed the Old Testament, and in a letter, August 14, that year, he wrote this. It is with heartfelt gratitude that I lay this work at the feet of my master. It's 36 years on the field. I'm conscious of the defects of my work. I have tried to master Kachin and make a translation intelligible to all. Pray with us that our divine master may bless this work to the salvation of the whole Kachin race. Today, virtually every Kachin can read and write Kachin and Burmese, the national language, and there are over a half a million Christians. That's your legacy. We, a church, sent that man. That's why he brought this church into being, among other thousands of reasons. So the legacy at Bethlehem goes back over a hundred years and has been one of the highest privileges of my life to inherit and bequeathed. Um, without exaggeration, to be a part of this and those those names, all but four of whom went out under my pastorate, is simply breathtaking. We are called to hold the ropes. Often I have thought, God, if we stumble, if we falter, if we mess it up, if this church explodes or implodes or in any way goes off the rails, there are going to be so many, many people and peoples that feel the reverberations. God, don't let it happen. Help us to keep holding the ropes. And that image of rope holding has been really precious to us. It comes from William Carey who went out to India, you know, in 1792, never came back, stayed there 40 years and died there. And he was talking with his pastor friends before he went about the fact that nobody had gone from their band anyway. And he said to John Ryland and Andrew Fuller, I will go down into the mine if you will hold the rope. And John Ryland reports from that meeting, he took an oath from each of us at the mouth of the pit to the effect that while, he, while we lived, we should never let go of the rope. That's what I have felt, that my hand is on your hand to not let go of the ropes, 110 families and singles on the 
on the field. 192 adults, 170 children, 362 souls go out from us to reach the nations. This is amazing. This is frightening. This is wonderful. What a privilege. You, you Bethlehem, should feel wonderful that you're a part of this church. You should feel wonderful that any dime you give or any effort you make to contribute to the life and ministry and the health of this church is keeping hands on the ropes of so many who've dropped over the cliff down to the mines that are so needy. So rejoice that we are not... What's what's amazing about that list, I mean, there was a time when we had a long list. This list, every one of those people is part of this church. We used to support missionaries from all kinds of other churches. And over the years, God has done such a work here that we can't even raise enough money to send all the people from our own church that want to be a part of that movement. And what an amazing thing. And you should feel really encouraged. So, as you know, on the second Sunday or the second Saturday of the Global Focus Week, we have for I don't know how many years, decades, invited you who are being called into longer-term cross-cultural missions to walk to the front at the end of this message across all of our campuses and testify outwardly of the wonderful work of God's call in your life and to be prayed over by by me or by someone else at the other campuses. And we're going to do that again in, in 30 minutes or so. And I tell you that up front because this is totally not about coercion. It's totally not about jerking anybody around. It's not about emotional highs. There'll be no music, no head bowed, no eye closed. (laughs) When I invite you to walk up here. So you can just be getting ready. And here's the question you should be asking. Because I don't want everybody to come. And I don't want people who love short-term missions only to come. Here's the the group. It won't be a huge group. Um, I, I want you to come if you have a growing sense, a compelling sense that God has been at work in your life to lead you sooner or later to cross cultures in longer term. And I simply mean like two years or more. don't want to be picky there, but I love short-term missions. I love what Brad's doing. I love that folder. I love that my daughter loves it. I love that I've been on them. But this is about the people who are sensing, this is my life if God keeps leading me this way. So that's, that's how you should be praying in the next 30 minutes. Should, should I be among that number that walks up there? And, and if you're a sender, you should have the total clear conscience not to walk up here and just rejoice in those who who do. So that's where we're going and what we've done for these many, many years. This is part of my series of 30-year theological distinctives. So I'm, I'm going to unfortunately totally ignore the text that was read. 
I, I arranged for this early. I said, I love this text, Todd, but would it be okay if I, if I just gave the big picture of what has driven us for these 30 years? And he was merciful to me and said, go ahead. And so maybe, maybe another time I'll do the exposition of Titus because that's a magnificent foundational text in every way. But where we're going now is that I'm going to give you 10 biblical convictions that have been the driving force of the mission vision of this church. And what, what you should be doing, I think, is asking the Lord, okay, I've probably heard a lot of these. Now, is there a fresh burning in my soul that you will do with this message? Because, you know, a lot of you have asked over the years, how do you know if you're called? Well, I'll tell you one way God does it. I was lying in a hospital bed in 1966, listening to Harold John Ockengay preach. What in the world? Is that my phone? <laughs> I've, I've got a clock going here, but I've never heard that, so I'll turn the clock off and ignore the time. No idea what that is. It's what you get for buying a new phone. Sorry. What was that? What was I saying here? Oh yes, I was in a hospital, <laughs> and I heard this man preaching, and I don't remember what he was preaching about, but what I knew was my heart burned with what he was doing. Doing, he was doing exposition, and my heart from that moment never ceased to burn. That was my call. I couldn't turn back. There was no way I could walk away from what was happening. So that's what, what might happen while I'm preaching. That as I talk about missions and give you biblical foundations, God would be doing something that he's, he probably didn't just begin to do in these services. He's been doing it perhaps maybe 20 years, 20 days, weeks, 20 minutes. He can do it any way he wants. And you just can sense this is what I am. This is where I am at home now. This is what I'm called to do. And you don't have to have absolute certainty about that. You just, you just take your steps as they come. Okay, so that's where we're going, and here's the ten biblical convictions. One, God is passionately committed to the fame of his name and that he be worshipped by all the peoples of the world and this is not egomania. So that's just last, what, two weeks ago sermon. No, three weeks ago. That God has a passion to be worshipped by all the peoples. And this is not egomania, it's love. Missions is joining God in his passion to love the world by giving himself to the world for the joy of their praise. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that He is exalted. God sends Jesus on the, on the earth in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy, Romans 15, 9. He does His mighty works in history that His name might be proclaimed in all the earth. He's passionate to have His name proclaimed and we join Him in that passion. That's what missions is. 
We join him in the passion he has for his fame. Number two, therefore, worship is the goal and the fuel of missions. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions is our way of saying the joy of worshiping Jesus is not tribal. It's not ethnocentric. It's global. The joy of worshiping the creator of the universe is a joy to be spread. And so when it is spread, those people begin to rejoice in worshiping. So it's driven out of our joy in worshiping into their joy in worshiping. So we talk about being the fuel and the goal of missions. You can't commend what you don't cherish. You can't Proclaim what you don't prize. And therefore, prizing Christ is the, the, the well out of which missions is bubbling. And what it's aiming at is prizing Christ in others. So worshiping Him is the, is the fuel and worship is the gold. And the reason it exists is because there's so many peoples where there is no true worship of the living God. And we have that joy, and we mean to share it. Number three, people must be told about Jesus because there is no salvation, there's no worship where the gospel of the crucified and risen Son of God is not heard and believed. People must be told. God has not set it up any other way. He doesn't save people by the arrivals of spaceships. But the arrival of missionaries, that's how he does it in unreached peoples. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. There's no other way. Romans 10. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. No serious Muslims have the sun. No serious Hindus have the sun. No serious Buddhists have the sun. Billions and billions of people without the sun and without life, and we have the sun. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, because there'll be no salvation without your going. Number four, God is committed to gathering worshipers from all peoples, not just all countries. We have a mission statement, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, and there's an S on the end of peoples for a reason. When the Bible says, make disciples of all nations, it doesn't mean USA, Japan, Argentina. It means Fulani, Cherokee, Han. And there are 12 to 16,000 of them, not 192. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to take the scroll and open its seals, for by your blood... 
You ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The point of that breakdown, tribe, tongue, people, nation, is not that they're precise, mutually exclusive entities, but to cover the whole gamut of the breakdown of humanity into these significant ethno-linguistic groupings that matter to God. God is not into countries. He's into peoples. Once the Somali who live across the street and have so few Christians among them to be reached. There are, according to the Joshua Project, over 7,000 unreached peoples. There's work to be done. And we exist, according to our mission statement, to do it. And God has blessed that. Oh, how He has blessed it. Number five, therefore, there's a critical need for Paul-type missionaries whose calling and passion is to take the gospel where the people have no access to it. No access. There are no churches there. There are no Christians there. You can't talk about the natives evangelizing their own. There aren't any. Paul-type distinguished from Timothy-type. And I love both types, and the Bible loves both types. Timothy left his home in Lystra when God called him into his mission and took him over and planted him in Ephesus. Probably a pretty big, big culture shock for smaller town Timothy to go to Ephesus and spend the rest of his life away from his mom and grandmother ministering in a, in a foreign place. That's Timothy-type missions because the church was already there. Well established by Paul and others. But Paul wrote in Romans 15, My eager ambition is to preach the gospel where Christ has not even been named. I have no more room for work in any of these regions, though there be tens of thousands of unbelievers here. That's missions talking. I don't have any room here. Why? The church is here. While I'm talking, some of you are going to feel that. Some of you are going to feel that. It won't be many. I mean, this is an unusual calling. We just need several hundred thousand. But that's not a lot, really. I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of churches in the world. This is not a lot. It won't take... Any big sacrifice if everybody were doing it, if, if every church were sending some Paul-type missionaries from all the peoples. And it won't be America probably that finishes this job. It'd be Brazil and Argentina and Nigeria, Mozambique, the Philippines. They have a lot more access than the Western Satan does is our tragic reputation so widely. But we go wherever they'll let us come or places where they won't. We go because Paul said, of course they're going to take my life, but that's no stop. Paul-type missionaries are required to finish this task because there are peoples where there isn't any church planted yet. So don't just send your money and not your blood. It's cheap. There's so many people talking that way these days. We don't need you anymore. We just need your money. That's not true. 
we all should be ridding, willing, and ready. Number six, we must send the global partners in a manner worthy of God. Tom Steller wrote the epilogue to my book on missions on that verse from 3 John 1.16 and has, has beat that trumpet as well as anybody. And now Todd is picking it up as the pastor for missions here. You will do well. This is the Bible talking now. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, which is why we have a mission staff, why we have a missions budget, why we have Barnabas teams, why we have a nurture program, why we have this in the bulletin. We are senders, most of us. And you know how we talk here. you got three options. Go, send, or disobey. There isn't any other option. There are those who go down over the cliff, those who hold the rope, and those who think it's none of their business. Number seven, it is fitting for us to have a wartime mindset in the use of our resources as long as thousands of peoples are without the gospel and we have resources to send it. The Queen Mary was a luxury liner until World War II. In World War II, it was conscripted to be a troop carrier, and instead of three bunks, they had seven bunks high. Instead of an 18-place set of china, they had a fork and a spoon and a tin plate with rations for 7,000 soldiers. That's the kinds of changes you tend to make in wartime. Everybody pitches in and does their part. And one of the reasons that we are as weak in many areas as we are is because we have a peacetime mentality and not a wartime mentality. We just relax in America. Good grief. Look at America. We just got everything we want here. This is, this is peacetime. It's not Afghanistan. No, 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 no. It's not peacetime. It's wartime. Our kids are dying You're dying. People all around us are being slain by the devil and his lies and being sold a bill of goods about the American way. And we have the resources to put people wherever they need to go. So, one of the implications that we've tried to press here is that there is a wartime mindset. There's a wartime lifestyle modeled by the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians 8, 2 in a severe test of affliction, and their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed with a wealth of generosity on their part. It is more blessed, they discovered, to give than to receive. God owns everything you have. You don't own what you have. It's not yours. You were bought with a price. Everything you have is His. You are His. And he cares about how it goes on the front line. He cares about the unreached peoples of the world and whether the troops are making it there and whether the firepower is there to help them. He cares about that as he manages your funds or you manage his funds. And so it makes a difference. Number eight. Prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie, not a domestic intercom. These are all slogans at Bethlehem. They go back... Multiple decades. Prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie, not a domestic intercom. Read you a verse where I got that. 
Jesus says, I chose you and appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And when I read that, I thought, wow, that is really strange. I chose you and appointed you to go so that your prayers will be answered. Wow. I know. What does that mean? It means I created this thing called prayer for, for people who are on mission. Not in their den ringing up the butler for a bigger pillow. I need a pillow. Say, hello, hello, hello. You wonder why your prayer's not functioning? That's not what it's for. Wrong wavelength. I think every request we make should include, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on the earth, including all over the unreached peoples, and that's why I want healing for my sore throat this morning, which I totally pray about. If our prayers have no connection to God's big causes, they're probably going to malfunction. This is not a domestic intercom. This is for This is for people who are under fire. Help, mayday, mayday. I need cover. He's talking to God. I need the Holy Spirit. I need some protection. I need some wisdom. I need words. God, please help me. I'm walking. I'm going. That's what prayer is for. And for senders as well. Send it to them, God. We got the email. Bring it down for them. Do they need us to come? What do they need? Tell us what you need. We will pitch in. That's number eight. Prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie, not a domestic intercom. And number nine, suffering is not only the price of being in missions, but the plan that God has for getting the job done. This is sobering. We're not playing games here. It's going to cost your life, some of you. Suffering is not only the price as you walk in obedience here and there. It is also the plan of God for getting the job done. A few texts, Matthew 10. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So just expect to be abused. At least verbally expect it. It, it hurts, it wounds, it makes you sometimes doubt. You wonder, did I, have I done it all wrong? Because they're going to make me sound like I've done it all wrong. Or Matthew 24, 9, they will deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. You'll be hated by all nations. How do they know you? You went there to be hated while you love them and give your life for them. That's what Jesus did. He came to a foreign, unreached people, and they killed him, and he saved them in dying. That's what we do. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Matthew ten sixteen. This is not just the price. This is the plan. This is the means how do you defeat the devil? 
who holds on to these people, blinds the minds of unbelievers. I'll read it to you. This is Revelation 12, 11. They have conquered him, the, the serpent, the devil, Satan. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. We triumph by his blood, our testimony, and our death. It looks like we're being defeated. We're not. So expect to suffer. Some of you expect to die. And we will, we will love you to the end. We will bury you with, with thanksgiving. And we will send replacements. And expect it to happen until Jesus comes. Number 10. The global cause of Christ cannot fail. Nothing you do in its cause can be in vain. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord your labor is not in vain. Never. Nothing. Littlest, littlest squeak of good-willed obedience is not in vain. You don't have to be a perfect person for that verse to apply to you. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. I have all authority over Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Egypt, Libya, Somalia, Turkey, China, India, Nepal, Burma, Vietnam, Japan, Indonesia, I have total authority in those places. They're mine. I made them. I hold them in being. I've been installed as the Messiah ruler of the universe by virtue of my resurrection. I will come again and take all to be mine. I mean in this age for them to be reached. I mean to have a people from them all. And I have the authority to get it done. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That means I will push on these gates. They will give way. I'll have my, my people from the gates of hell. Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. Not maybe, but will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testament to all the nations, and then the end will, will come. He has a people. He has ransomed them. He means to have them. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must, I must, I must bring them also. They will, they will, they will, they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And those are my ten biblical convictions that have taken hold of us for these years and continue to drive this remarkable missionary enterprise called Bethlehem. There are more. Well, I'd love to go on with more. And say anything about the difference between frontier and domestic ministries, and maybe maybe t- maybe tomorrow night we'd do some of those. There are more. Now, for some of you who have been listening, um, you have felt okay. 
I've thought about some of those things. And now I'm faced again. Here I have it all rumbling in my soul again. It's all being stirred up again. And I just want you to be praying right now in the next minute or two before I have you come. Let me just define again who I'm going to invite up here. I'll tell you the reason we do it, first of all. I think it's really beautiful to publicly testify God has been at work in me to give me, as far as I can tell, I'm not infallible, a compelling desire to do this. In other words, every person who walks up here is a statement about the work of God toward missions. It's a beautiful thing. And the second reason is I want to pray over you in a focused way here that God would give you clarity about that and deeper conviction about that and greater courage for that. That's what I want to pray over you when you, when you come. And then we have some materials to give you as well to help you move, move forward. And Todd will be here. Uh, and others on, on every campus and at the men's retreat, uh, Sunday evening, Sunday morning, uh, there will be people appointed when this video shuts down to finish off what I do here in those places. You may be 12 years old. You may be 20, 55, 75. And the question is, Do I have a a compelling sense that God is leading me to to move towards crossing a culture longer term, not just short term, but longer term? And if you're willing to do that, as long as he keeps opening doors, he could shut them, he could keep you from doing it. You'll just keep following that inclination. So let me pray. And then, and then I'll invite you to come. So, Father, as we bow our heads, there, there are people who are on all these campuses and in all these services wondering, am I at that point of feeling a, a compelling sense? That's my phrase for how fallible human beings discern a divine call. They have a have a compelling sense that you're at work in their lives to lead them into cross-cultural missions two years or longer. And I ask you to make it plain enough for them to know what to do. Lord of the harvest, we are, we are simply trying to put ourselves in your hand now to call and to send. So I pray that you would answer and do it in Jesus' name.